This is Humans of Non-League, a podcast about the people who live and love football outside the spotlight. My name is Chris Nee, and this week's Human is a genuine legend of the non-league game in and around London. Joe Vines has been celebrated by supporters and teammates alike throughout his playing career, much of which was played wearing a captain's armband. He made his name as a tough tackling defender at a number of clubs, including Bromley, Crawley Town, Lewis, Tottenham, and Mitcham United, AFC Wimbledon, Maidstone United and of course at Cray Wanderers where he's also been applying his coaching skills as assistant manager. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. That was a lovely... I don't know if you missed any clubs off there. I know it's a, a long old list. Definitely a few. Paper yeah. Mills? Cray Valley Paper Mills. Yeah. Um, Ashford United. I think there's a... Yeah, Margate. There's a few in there. All all obviously very sad to see me leave at various clubs. Yeah. Yeah, trying to do it in one breath as well, though, so I had to truncate the list a little bit for you. Yeah, you've got to be careful before you fall over. No, I appreciate it. I'm going to take you all the way back to the beginning, and I mean all the way back as well. We've never spoken about this before. We've had a few conversations over the years. Where did you grow up? Where's where's the, the beginning of the Joe Vine story? Um, oh, yeah. So I, I'm from, and you'll be upset by this, I, I was born in King's College Hospital, which is just up the road from Dulwich Hamlet Football Club. Um, so I was, I'm a Campbell boy originally. Um, I lived there until I was 10. Um, so I used to go to school in Brixton and my, we lived in church housing and, you know, it's like a housing association. And obviously I've got a brother and, and two younger sisters and my mum and dad's and we all jammed into a little pokey flat in Campbell at the time. Um, so they decided to, there was like a house swap arrangement. And, uh, and from there, we moved to Sidcup. We had a townhouse in Sidcup, which is where I've spent most of my later years um, until I was a real a proper grown-up and I moved out on my own. But yeah, started in, in Campbell or Brixton as a kid. So was that kicking a ball around the streets, your first intro into football? Yeah, do you know what? I never really, I didn't really play football properly um, as a kid because, well, firstly, there was, there weren't much grass, <laughs> There were, you know, the school playground was concrete. There's a thing. I mean, South London boys will recognise, but there was a big five-a-side tournament thing, the Brixton Fives, and it was it was set up by like a police. It was it was to do with the Metropolitan Police, um, as a way of like getting the kids off the streets, and um, that was something that you know, good footballers at my school. I went to St John's Angel Town, um, which is a pretty rough um, area. In South London, anyone that knows Brixton will know Angel Town, and um, everybody aspired to get in that five-a-side team. But obviously, there's only five kids, so it was quite difficult to break into it. And I never managed it as a as a uh, primary school kid. So when I moved to Sidcup, I was ten. It was in the the final term of year four, year five, I think. Um, that's when I really started playing football properly. So I used to kick about with my brother in the street and we used to do other things and like throw stones and, you know, cause mischief on the estate. But we weren't really, you know, we didn't play for a, a proper club or anything along those lines. Were you consuming professional football early on following a team? Yeah, I'm mad Spurs. My dad's mad Spurs. My brother's mad Spurs. You know, my dad's from Hackney, was born in Hackney originally and then moved to Brixton. Um, but he used to go used to you know go and watch Spurs in the in the 70s and he loved it he's a he's a Spurs mad so we we still go now and you know it's probably the only place that I see him truly happy because he's a miserable sod (laughs) who were the players who caught your eye at like 10 11 years old 
Oh, I mean, I, I I know the moment I fell in love with football. You know, really fell in love with it, and it was the nineteen ninety World Cup, and it was Paul Gascoigne. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to be a footballer. I want, I wanted to be Gaza. You know, obviously we've got slightly different playing styles, <laughs> but, but he was the ultimate because he had that charisma, and he, you know, he, he obviously loved the game, and he, he he left it all out on the pitch. You know, yeah, he was the one. He, he was absolutely the one. Um, Gaza all day long. Did you then follow that all the way through um, Gazetta Football Italia? Yeah, that's why I'm a, did. I, I was a big fan of Italian football because I yeah. followed Gaza to Italy, obviously with a big move to, to Lazio, 5.5 mil. And I fell in love with people like, you know, Baresi at the title slightly earlier. But, you know, Maldini, Beppe Signori, you know, Lazio had some really good players at that time. Um, but also people like uh, Gabriel Batistuta, you know, and even in the, in the more recently, people like Inzaghi, um, just they, they had... The, the technicalities of the Italian game was so much better than the blood and guts of, um, and I do love the blood and guts of the the English leagues, but I think the quality, um, you know, you'd, you'd watch a nil-nil draw and it'd just be a chess match. You know, two excellent sides, just well-drilled and coached. And it was a thing of beauty for me. I really bought into that. Um, and I liked it much more than, you know, even the Spanish league in, in modern years. I think that those early 90 um, Syria teams were just perfection. What was your introduction into playing organised football at whatever age that was? Um, just at school. So at sort of 10, when I moved to Cup, I got introduced to the school team, started playing. And then my brother and I were having a kickabout over the field where we lived. And some guy came over and said to my brother, like, how old are you? And he said, like, eight and um, he's like, well, do you want to play for a team? So my brother started playing for this team, Footscray Lions. So they were like quite a well-known team in the Sikup area. You know, Footscray is like the armpit of Sikup. Um, it's not quite the arse, it's the armpit. <laughs> and um, there's, a quite, there's a couple of estates around there and it's quite a rough, you know, rough and tumble area. And um, then I got introduced to the old, older team and I started playing. And my brother actually played a year up all the way through. And um, yeah, we just got stuck into it. And it, eventually my manager left and my dad took over. So my dad was my manager from about 13 till 17 till I started, I stepped into adult football. But those were my formative years, really, just playing with my mates and, uh, you know, having a laugh and, you know, enjoying all that football brings. Before we move into adult football, was there anything else as a kid that kind of had your attention away from the game? I played everything. I played rugby. Okay. I represented the school athletics, you know, I played cricket for the school. I played, you name it, I played it. I just loved sport. I just loved, more than anything, I just loved competing because, you know, people that have got younger brothers or older brothers will know that like, you're, you're ultra competitive, you're born competitive because you always want to beat them, you always want to win. Um, and my brother and, uh, and I were close and still are. So we're always trying to, you know, whatever it was, you know, there's a winner or a loser. Someone's going to get the ump. There's going to be a fight at the end of it. We were just that way inclined. I think my mum was a sprinter. She used to run 100 and 200 metres. Um, my dad used to play football, but he was asked to play rugby. Someone came up to him in Tesco's, asked him to play, if he wanted to play American football because he's a giant of a man. <laughs> but he's the same. He never used to let us win when we were kids. He's very competitive. So it sort of, it was bred in us. Were you academic? Yeah, reasonably. Um, you know, the school that I went to, the secondary school that I went to, wasn't 
a particularly good school. So I was in top sets for everything. You know, I, I achieved good grades in my GCSEs. Um, but at 17, I decided I wanted to go, go to work. I like the idea of earning money. And I got an apprenticeship with the Royal Mail as an electromechanical engineer. But I failed all my exams with that. So although I didn't have an education you know, any further than that, A-levels, I was doing a, a HNC in electrical mm. mechanical engineering. So, you know, if I'd have passed that, I would have had, a, you know, effectively a degree from the Montford University, which I thought was just something you heard on an advert on TV. But it is a real place uh, <laughs> in Milton Keynes. And then at that point, you know, when I failed my exams, I stepped out of that and, you know, pursued other options. But yeah, academic and to a degree, I was smart enough. Where would you say your football career began in terms of being signed to a club where there was a pathway to the first team? Well, I went straight into the first team at um, Cray Valley Paper Mills, but okay. at that time they were significantly lower than where they are these days. They've, they've had a real good run. Mm. They've, got, they've got a very good structure and a very good manager. But at the time they were in the South London Alliance League, which sort of covered all the way around to Leighton and Bow and all around East London. And what happened was I used to play on a Sunday morning above my age group and all those boys were, were going into under 18s and then adult football. And the one of the players, his dad was the chairman at Cray Valley. So they said, like, why don't you come down and, and have a go on a Saturday, try out on a Saturday? So very quickly, I broke into the first team. The manager at the time is a guy called Chris Brady. Um, who's the dean? I think he's the dean of Bournemouth University, but he's a really smart man, and he was—he really took me under his wing. He was one of the first A-licensed coaches, um, alongside people like Paul Bracewell. I don't know if you recall Paul Bracewell; he used to play for Newcastle. And um, Chris was—you know—how or why he was involved at that level of football, I will have no idea. But he was unbelievable, um, an unbelievable coach, and an unbelievable man. He, he actually advises on business in football and football in business. So, for example, when Cristiano Ronaldo got his move to Real Madrid, he was talking about the effect that that would have on the, you know, the infrastructure of football as a whole. You know, the money that Man United would get, they would then spend X amount on players from these clubs and you know, the knock-on effect of that. And buying that player would mean a 25% you know, fee for this club because that's where that player originally came from, that whole waterfall effect. Mm. Um, so Chris is like a super smart man, you know, somebody that I, you know, I loved my time with. And he was the one that really sort of, and at that time I was living in Milton Keynes doing my apprenticeship. So I didn't used to train. I used to come back on a Friday and I just used to play on a Saturday. And that was it. I never trained with him or anything, but he just gave me information that, and it also at 17, the other thing that really impacted my football was the fact that I got contact lenses. Because up until that point, I couldn't see. Um, so I was just charging about, you know, like I, kicking lumps out of people and running into things. And um, surprisingly enough, at 17, I had a lot of interest from professional clubs because of the fact that my, my game just came on rapidly. Mm. So you have that good influence early on. Were you already established as a defender at that point? You, was there any positional change in your, your youth football up to that point? Yeah, I was a centre half um, from day dot really because you know I could attack the ball. I was aggressive. You know, I wasn't I wasn't great at checking my shoulders in midfield. I had a little guy in midfield, but I wasn't really you know the awareness. I was better with the game in front of me. I was a real yeah. front foot defender. 
but actually, you know, as the years have gone on, I've played in, I've played all over the pitch. I was, I was quiet. I played, I could play left back, I could play right back. I played in midfield. I played in goal at one stage in Conference South. Goalie got sent off a winning goal. I've literally, I've literally played in every position, I think, over the years. But, you know, my natural, I think at my best, I was definitely a centre half. Yeah. I've seen most of those positions myself over the years. One or two of them, certainly. Um, If I put you on the spot and say, you've got a few seconds to give me a whistle-stop tour of of the Joe Vines experience through London and South East non-league football, how much of that can you kind of recall as a as a career path? I can give you it cradle to grave. I can tell you everything. I can I literally, because I look back on it all with such, um, you know, people always say, oh, do you think you could have done better? And I did exactly what I was, I was supposed to do in the game. There was no, it wasn't anybody else's fault. It wasn't my fault. I was working from 17. So I didn't want to be a footballer. I wanted to play football. Mm. So I haven't got a bitterness. I've got a lot of friends who are like, oh, I was at Millwall when I got let go. And there's this sob story around it. Whereas I loved every second. I wouldn't take any of it back. I wouldn't make any different decisions. It was, it was an absolute joy. You know, even the bad things that happened, you know, the injuries and, you know, I've learned from or that, that, that there's been some good that's come, that's come out of it. Again, I don't know if that's just my skewed view on the world or, you know, I, I'm a eternally positive person but you know when you look at I went from Cray Valley to Cray Wanderers stepped up a level I went from Cray Wanderers to Bromley stepped up a level I went from Bromley to Crawley stepped up a level then I stepped back a level went to Lewis had a really successful period there then I went to AFC Wimbledon on loan went back to Lewis fought my way back into the side then decided to leave, even though I got offered another year's contract in the Conference South. Went to Bromley again, had a successful period at Bromley. Then went to Welling briefly, had a nightmare, had an injury. Then went to, I can literally, I can pick them off. I can yeah. tell you exactly where I've been, who I was with, what happened. You know, and then went to Tooting, had unbelievable time at Tooting. But every club I've been to, I've, I've had some sort of affinity with the club. And I think that, I think you have to to enjoy it, you know, whether that's the manager. I mean, ultimately you play for the manager, but you know, if there's a club that have got particular, you know, Margate was a fantastic club with great fans, really supportive, great fans. And there are other clubs that I would never go anywhere near because I knew that I wouldn't get on with their supporters. You know, people like Tunbridge Angels, like and my mates are down there at the minute. My mates, <laughs> the manager, he's probably going to, if he listens to this, he's probably the, the knives will be out, but you know, they turn, they turn on their own. I never understood that. And it, it didn't sit well with me. So I, I love to play for teams that really bought into you. And I love the fact that as a player, you could play the game and someone's going, oh, that's no good. And then you go in the bar after and you can have a drink with them and they go, oh, I think you, and they go, oh, I think this. And that's the beauty of non-league, I think. You, you know, your Premier League footballers are so far removed. Whereas, you know, we're, we're in, in the bar with you. We're, you know, we're one and the same. I saw a guy called Paul Vine score a hat trick against Tombridge Angels once. Yeah, yeah, good player, him, good player. Yeah, <laughs> still going um, apparently. Yeah, just about. That was a surprise. Still scoring goals. Yeah, just about. Anybody who lives kind of well to the north of me would hear that list of clubs and think that you were a, a, a local player. There's a lot of travel involved yeah. between where you lived and where those teams are. That's a huge span of, of football. So you, yeah, you lived the full kind of non-league experience. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I speak, to, obviously, there's there's boys that I've been friends with for years that people won't realise. You know, there's, there's boys that have played their whole career in Essex but live this side. Uh, there's a boy called Frankie Chapel, who's, I think he's, the, he's at Whitehawk now, but he played for Folkestone and those sides. But he's from Woolwich. You know, you wouldn't know that. You think he lived on the coast. Mm. So people do travel and people, you know, go where they're wanted. I was working for that whole period, you know, for a lot of that time I was working in Bromley in the early years and then I was working in the city. So I was traveling to, you know, I was working in city, get on a train to go and meet someone, to jump in the car, to go all the way down to Lewis or Margate or Ashford even. And then, you know, Tuesday night, game finishes, back home, get in at 12 o'clock, you know, up at six o'clock back into the city. So there's a lot of hard work and dedication to it, but, it's it's the game it's the love of the game isn't it you know because certainly wasn't the money the money was okay you'd get a couple of quid but it's not life-changing it's the love of the game as i recall you quite enjoyed a bit of panto villainy oh i loved it yeah i loved it (laughs) do you still do it now yeah i've upset kingstonian i upset the kingstonian fans the other um (laughs) at the beginning of the season yeah there's always a it has to be right you there has to be because when you've got 300 people in the stadium and someone's really giving you grief, you can pick that person out. If there's 20,000 in the stadium, it's a wall of noise. You, I, I think that you know it's easy to hide. As a player, yeah, you get the U's and the R's and a few boos, but you know, you're hearing an individual digging you out specifically, calling your name. You know, it goes quiet. They're calling your name when you sort of turn around and they're on you. And I think that you've got every right to give them a bit back. And what I found, not with all non-league fans, but the ones that generally got a lot to say for themselves are mostly not the sharpest. So it doesn't take much to cut them down. So I've, yeah, I must admit, I still enjoy that. I've, you know, I had about eight or 900 lowest off fans on a bit of string one time that was just beautiful. Um, Yeah. Alan McLeod, you'll remember Alan McLeod. Very well. Yeah. He was the same. You know, he was a he's a he's a great lad, and he could have a fight in a telephone box, <laughs> and he used to upset people for fun. It's it's all the fun of the fair, love it. It sort of mirrored your game as well, didn't it? Because as a as a footballer, I think you would best be described as you know very aware, very um, cultured defender, but combative as well. I could play, I could play, but I, I enjoyed the competition. You know, I much preferred the big. You know, six foot two, six foot three, Alan Shearer, all action type um, centre forward. Then I did the little nippy ones that you couldn't get a tackle on. Yeah, I just, I I loved any advantage I could get over the, and I was talking to a friend of mine recently, Gary Elphick. He's at Hastings now, but he's been through the leagues. He was sat, we played Eastbourne when they were in the conference when we were at Tooting. And we drew the home game on the Saturday to all. They scored a late equaliser. And then we went down there on the Tuesday night and, you know, they were expecting to roll us over and we beat him 4-2. And he was saying to me, he said, I remember you just, he said, you and your brother, you, you, you picked on the left back. He said, you came up for a corner and you were talking amongst yourselves, but louder. And you were saying, oh, we're playing on the left back because he's, he's toilet. Oh, he's got nothing about him. Like, he's the weak link. Let's, let's play on him. We're just playing on him because he's the weak link. What, what do you think? Yeah, he's the weak link all day long. And even though he was a good player, we made him into the weak link. And so much of the game is 
is in the mind. You know, you talk about confidence players and, you know, are oh, you watching someone on the telly and you go, oh, he's lost all his confidence. Well, you need a single mindedness and a resilience to play sport full stop. You know, you, know, you see golfers with the yips or you see, you know, people fall into pieces, you know, tennis players and such. You, you need that resilience and that mental toughness. And I think that's, that's what I had. You know, I wasn't blessed with ability as such, but, you know, I was a fierce competitor um, and just loved every second that I played more than anything. So, uh, uh, we're going to talk about this because I've got Francis Duku and Gavin Rose on the next couple of weeks. So you and I are going to talk tooting. Our past first cross there in 2008 was my, my first game there. You scored a goal that night, actually. And the team that you captained there over those few years, for me, was very memorable mm. and really kind of lit up my love of non-league football full stop, which is like why I'm doing this and why I still go yeah. home and away with, with my local team now. You must look back on that with a huge amount of pride. Yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, because there's so many facets to that because you know what people don't understand is... Bill and George came across off the back of, you know, some sort of skullduggery at Bromley. You know, Mark Goldberg came in um, and basically took the job. Um, they'd done a good enough job. And, you know, he came with him with a lot of fanfare and, you know, putting his own money into it and stuff like that. I know he's still involved some, he's at Welling, I think, but yeah, he's not my cup of tea. And George and Bill are like two of the most unbelievable people. They're like, they're old school. They, you know, they do their deals on a handshake. You know, you don't, you know, people say this, they broke the mold or they don't make them like that anymore. They really don't. And, you know, Bill was widely respected. Um, you know, he really knew a player, but Bill was a very, he understood me because we were very similar. He's quite an angry man. Um, he just, he's just a brilliant, brilliant guy. He, um, every other word is a swear word. He was scared of money. So George used to do the deals. George used to do the negotiation because Bill hated it because it wasn't his driver. You know, he worked in the flower market, Covent Garden flower market, but he was, you know, his passion was football. Um, and obviously he was a good player in his time, but he, um, he was just widely, widely loved and respected in the game. And George is the same. How they came together, they were mates for years and years, but they obviously, you know, managed separate teams. But them as a pairing was unbelievable. So there was that. They brought my brother in and they were sniffing around him. We went away on a on a trip to Fengarola or somewhere with Bromley, end of season. We knew we were all going and they were on me. And my brother, I'm sure he came with us and they were on me going like, get your brother to come over. So he'd come over and I was going to Welling because I wanted to try and play as high as I could at that point. And they're like, nah, come and play with your brother, come play with your brother. So I think I lasted five or six games at Welling. The guy was playing me right back and then he released me. I didn't leave on my own accord. He released me. So then I ended up at Tooting. So originally Alan McLeod was the skipper for the first two years. Um, great player, Al. Um, he was with us at Bromley as well. And we just, what they managed to do, slowly but surely, they brought Ramold in from Cole Shorten. They had um, Dean Hamlin, who's still there now who's like the evergreen Dean Hamlin, unbelievable. Originally, they bought Aaron Good. They had, um, obviously, Dave King mm. in goal. My great mate, Dave, best at the bar ever because he's six foot five and he just stands there buying the drinks all night. He's fantastic. We had Eben Allen. We had Ronnie Green. We had you know Ben Abbey. We just had good people. And what they built was 
a side that was, you know, the camaraderie. We used to go out every Saturday together. Um, it didn't matter who you were. You know, there were no little clicks. It, it, it was, you know, such a joint effort. And, you know, all of the boys really enjoyed one another's company. Um, we lived in each other's pockets. Colin Hartburn, you know, what a great guy he is. Matty York, um, you know, mm. list, the list goes on really because individually, you know, I wouldn't have said that we were the best, but as a collective, people always talk about that tooting team, always. And they'll say to me, oh, God, that was an hard team to play against. You know, you, you, they, never, they never rolled over and had their belly tickled. You know, we were competitive for 95 minutes, um, hard to beat. Um, and we used to get in people's faces and really, you know, the way that we were set up, you know, we eventually we played it at 3-5-2. Um, so we were all out action. So we could, we could wallop you, we could get walloped, but you knew you were in for a game. Yeah, I can vouch for that. Do you stay in touch with... The players and, and management from that yeah, team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got, I mean, George, George Wakelin's like family to me. Um, obviously, Bill Smith in recent years has really struggled with, mm. you know, he's he's sort of, he's got a bit of a, a decline in his health, you know, so he's been difficult. We, we had a little get together a couple of years ago down the club, but the, there's a WhatsApp group. There's a sort of, there's a tooting WhatsApp group from that era, you know, people like Simon Parker and... Oh. Some player he was as well. Yeah, great player. Great foil for my brother. Yeah. Um, but they're all the boys, they're just they're exactly the same. You know, Matt York, he's all doom and gloom. Um, he can't help himself. Nah, he's a good, he's a great lad, York. He's a very underrated player as well, by the way. But yeah, the boys still get on. Dean Amlin was texting me yesterday about something. So yeah, you, we sort of built really good uh, friendships. We'll probably see each other when we're old and grey or older and greyer. You strike me as the kind of person who would pick up some relationships like that from your other clubs as well. Yeah, I mean, I, my missus gets the ump. I can't walk through Blue Water without people stopping me. And I think I've collected them over the years because there's a, I, when I went to Cray as a player the last time, uh, when Tony signed me as a player, and one of the guys I played with is a guy called Lewis Tozer. And he said, after two or three weeks in, he went, Finds he went, you're a top man. You're a top man. I said, oh, thanks. I was like, that's really nice. He said, I always thought you were a right prick. <laughs> and I said, well, it's because you were playing against me. So if you're against me, you're against me. But when you're on my side, and because I've had so many clubs over the years, as you can imagine, and, you know, you you go on nights out and boys are mates of other boys and you get that extended, it's that six degrees of separation. I've been very fortunate to pick up a lot of mates along the way. Um, and hopefully that will continue. I think it's the best place. You know, football is such a leveller. Um, I often talk about, you know, Dave King was a, an accountant for um, law firms. You know, Dave's got like three houses. He's got two cars, a motorbike. Um, and his best mate in the tooting dressing room was a, you know, a young boy off the estate. You know, a young black boy that, you know, in, in the real world, they would never have been, their paths would never have crossed, let alone been best mates. You know, and I've seen them hanging around each other's shoulders on a holiday and drunk. It's beautiful. Yeah, he worked hard, King, as well, didn't he? He, uh, he missed a few games. He's a, he is a fantastic fella. Fantastic. What would you say was your proudest achievement as a player? Oh, it's hard. There's no real, there's no one standout because there's just good stories. There's just, mm. you know, there's league, I've won leagues, I've won via promotion. I won a super playoff before there was a super playoff. 
you know, the FA Cup run that we had and we played Stockport, we got beat 5-0, was brilliant. The run was brilliant, but the, the day was brilliant. We lost 5-0, but the night out was unbelievable. It's one of the best ever. It was so yeah. greatest achievement. You know, what I loved, what I, I think, what I felt, what I enjoyed or was most proud of was the fact that my brother and I played together so much, you know, for Tooting, for Cray, for Bromley, um, for Maidstone, you know, for Greenwich Borough in the end, like all of these clubs, he sort of, you know, I thought he would kick on and I think he was unfortunate that he didn't because he was consistently scored goals. But, you know, I think for me, playing in the same team as him was was brilliant. What was it like chemistry-wise playing with Paul? Because you, you're different ends of the pitch, obviously, but the relationship is still there and was very evident from the sidelines. Yeah, we used to row though. We used to, we we um, yeah yeah we used to row, <laughs> and we used to row on the pitch, and you know because I sort of I, I would expect more from him than I would ev- everybody else. But yeah, the chemistry was good. Like we we get on well. Like he's you know we're close. We're still close, um, as close as, as as two brothers could be really. Um, but you know he he never used to listen to me. He's his own man, you know. But I'd say to him, like, have a touch, and then he'd volley it first time into the top corner. And he'd turn around and say, I see, you're telling me I have a touch. I was like, all right. But um, yeah, I, I mean, chemistry-wise, as players, I understood his game more than most. Uh, I think that was no more evident than when I played against him because I don't think he ever scored against me. Um, but, you know, when we played in the same team, I think I was able to get the best out of him. Bearing in mind your style, I think we've, we've touched on this a little bit, but what does football mean to you? What should it look like? Well, I'm a walking contradiction because the way that I played it was the way that I was good at. Um, you know, I was discouraged to step into midfield as a centre-back, like carry the ball into midfield because that's what I like to do. I like to carry the ball and try and get into midfield and then create an overload and play. Um, but all the managers said to me, don't do that. Your job is to get it, edit, volley it, you know, leave it a curly one down the line and then we'll press and we'll play high. And, we're, and so I just, I was professional in that I used to do what the manager told me to do, if that makes sense. Um, I didn't necessarily enjoy that style of play. Um, When I joined Cray as a player more recently, um, I fell in love with Tony Russell's style. He's a very progressive um, possession-based manager and coach, but there was no sort of, arguments with me falling into that way of thinking because again I'm a Spurs fan right so you know we play beautiful or we have done until we we're going to win something this year by the way playing ugly um, but we play beautiful attractive football and always fall short that's the Spurs way so I sort of had this romanticism around how the game should be played when you think about the players that I loved were you know you David Ginola, your Gazzas, your Chrissy Waddles, um, the creative players, the flair players. They're the players that I want to pay money to watch. Those ones, the, the, the creatives, the, the avant-garde, you know, those, what do they call the magicians? Mm. Wouldn't be the same without them, would it? Mm. I think we should probably move on to what you're, what you're up to now because you are still very much involved with football and with Cray. Yeah. And you are assistant manager? Assistant, yeah, that's right. So, yeah. You are now Joe Vines, the coach. How's that journey been for you? It's been good. It's been good. So I'm sort of, this is my fourth season. Um, the first year, you know, stepping out of playing, because originally I was a player coach or a player assistant. 
So I still very much, you know, love the com- uh, the competition. But stepping out of that and getting accustomed to, you know, the player side, the managing the player side, there's a there's very much a not a good cop bad cop, but you know, I, I like to whisper in a few ears, and you know, I like to do a lot of the one on one stuff with boys, and you know, I read a lot, so because of my job involves managing people um i've read a lot about the psychology of business and the psychology of sport and creating successful teams so you know how i manage um you know i've introduced some factors to the club that have i call it the one percent you know i've improved certain aspects not just me but i've i've encouraged and, and helped the club and the management function introduce certain things that i felt would improve us as a as a team and as a club and which has been proven to be right you know the video analysis piece there's a well-being piece so for example when the boys walk in the dressing room they have to give a score um, that involves their physical and mental well-being so we can identify anybody that's having difficulty without them actually telling us they're having difficulty mm-hmm. if that makes sense so yeah it's been it's been great it's been brilliant i think i've developed as a coach I think I've developed my understanding of the game tactically, which probably wasn't as good as it should have been as a player. Um, maybe you don't look at it in that way, but I knew my job. I didn't necessarily know all of the moving parts. Um, I think that's really greatly improved over the last three years. And, and obviously we've had a lot of success in the last three years. You know, we, we came third the first year, lost in the playoffs. Then we won the league the following season. And last year at point of the league stopping with eight games to go we were second so you know you've seen year on year improvement um this year where if we win our game in hand i think we go second again and we've had a better start than we did last year you know i think for me working with tony russell he's he's been great for me because we understand each other i've probably got a lot more leeway um and a voice than most assistant managers um, because we try to do everything together, um, whether that's player recruitment or, you know, all sorts of aspects of you know, what goes on. You know, during the lockdown, I created a um, scouting network. Um, I built a database of uh, 2,500 players at our level. So, you know, not just me, but as a collective, but, dr- you know, drove that forward. Um, so just always trying to just nick that extra advantage where we can. And I think Tony being open to that, it's quite staunching some of his views, but being able to have somebody that will listen and say, like I say, Tony, I think maybe we should do this. And he'll say no because of this or that. And then I have to work on him and work on him and work on him. And then to the point where he either says, look, leave me alone or okay, give it a try, but on your head be it. So I think that relationship's really helped me. That cerebral approach is quite a modern way of, of taking on that job, isn't it? So have you got boys in the dressing room who knew you as a player who are now looking at you and thinking, where's this come from? Who's this guy? Um, I think if you played with me or if you know me, if you ju- if you were just sitting in the stands and you're watching me play football and kick lumps out of your centre forward, then your perception of me would be very different, you know, to somebody that sat in the dressing room with me. I was a I was a thinker. I was, you know, constantly, you know, I used to research when I played, I used to know what foot the striker, you know, I'd, I wouldn't necessarily watch videos. We didn't have that luxury, but, you know, I would know that someone like, I don't know, Danny Hockton would strike the ball early before you were set 
you know, I'd, I would know that. So I would get close to him. I knew that he couldn't outpace me, but I knew that if I gave him a bit of space, he was hitting shots that would go through your legs or to the side of you and before the goalkeeper was set. I, I was, you know, I was aware of, you know, not necessarily tactically, but I was a student of the game. You know, even when I was finishing up playing, I, I had a list of players that I liked because I always thought that I would step into that side of things and they were players that I think suited the way that I wanted to play the game. Um, you know, Mitchell Nelson plays for us. You remember Mitch as a 19-year-old yeah. kid. He played alongside me. So, you know, and, and, and we're really close. Um, and he often talks about, you know, I spoke to him a lot as a 19-year-old kid, you know, some of which he took on board, some of which he didn't. But, you know, he played at a much, much higher level. Mm -hmm. he, he went to Bournemouth. So, you know, I like to think that maybe my, the perception of me from those that don't know me would be very different to those that do. Is being the first team manager a long-term goal of yours at some point? Do you know what? If I were to leave Cray, then I would probably look for a management role. Um, I think the difficulty is I've got a business that, you know, I've, that we've started quite recently that takes up a lot of my time. And I think that to be a good manager, a successful manager, you need to really dedicate a lot of time to going to games and, you know, watching football matches and watching players. Um, you know, I do a lot of that stuff from home in terms of the video analysis and such, but I don't go to games currently because my situation doesn't allow. I've got a young family as well. So, you know, they want to see their dad. Um, so it's a balancing act. You know, I'm eager to test myself at a higher level, whether that's Conference South or Conference National. You know, half the teams in the Conference National or more than half a full time. That would mean that I go and be a assistant manager on 20 grand a year or something. I mean, you know, not to sound too much like Naomi Campbell, but I wouldn't get out of bed for that. Some of those, the, the fully professional teams at the lower end of that spectrum are very, very young, aren't they? The, the players, for yeah. a reason. And you can see, I think there's a drop-off in quality because of that reason, because the, there are the boys that play, that go to work and play, who are very, very good and, and won't step up a level because the impact it will have on them financially. Um, and then you've obviously got your bigger boys that will pay the money to allow for proper professional footballers. So it's that, you know, it's, it's not a fair playing field from that perspective. And as much as I've got aspirations to go higher, you know, I would need to be an assistant manager probably at League One or Championship level for me to earn the money that I earn going to work. Don't make sense, does it? No, it doesn't. So you've already told us that your day job, your work has a positive impact on aspects of, of the way you approach your, your role at Cray. Does it work the other way as well? Have you taken lessons from football into your professional life? 100%, 100%. When you look at managing teams, because people come from all walks of life as well. So, you know, silly things like, you know, I managed a big, you know, it's probably about 30 people, um, a direct sourcing team. So I'm a technical recruiter. Um, and it was a real mixed bag of, of um, you know, male, female, you know, all sorts of ages and ethnicities. And one of the things that we would historically do to celebrate success would be to go down the pub. Now, you know, we had to return to work mums within that group, for example. So they get in at 8.30, they leave at five on the dot to go and see their kids. So they've done just as good a job as anyone else, but they can't go down the pub. So, you know, you, you have to be, 
you have to have empathy for everybody's situation um, and understanding. So that's what football's given me. It's not a one size fits all. You know, this whole, you know, you've got to treat all your kids the same. Well, you don't and you haven't because people are different. You know, what drives them, what motivates them? You know, it's the old um, man management piece, you know, the arm around the shoulder or to kick up the backside. Um, I think that's going away. I think that we're bringing up a generation of, of children that, you know, are told that they're great all the time. Um, they're not living through the same level of hardship on the whole that maybe my generation was and certainly not the generation before. So, you know, you have to find new ways to motivate and inspire. Um, and I'm, I'm continuously looking for that. And football can help you with, with that because, you know, even in your level one coaching, one of the key things that you're told is these players, some, some of you guys are going to be coaching young kids and you think that you can do it through the universal language of football. But the reality is you don't speak that language at all. And you need to be understanding of all of that and understand their culture and their world in order to coach them properly. Mm. I mean, what you'll find is that you'll have an affinity or you know, it will be easier. So for example, I like the problem kids. I find the problem kids easier for me to coach because I was a problem kid. You know, I was one of these that was always in trouble and getting up to mischief. And when I find one of those, I find myself immediately drawn to them and I, I invest a little bit more time and effort into it. But why should I then disregard, you know, the kid that's turning up diligently um, and hasn't got any problems? You know, their their dad drops them off and they, they, they get on with their business quietly. So you really have to be mindful of where you put your time and your effort to get the best out of each of each of them and, and obviously give them exactly what it is that they need. You know, the younger player, some of the older players, you might think, well, they don't really need me to go and say, well done. They know they played well. Well, of course they do. Even if they're 35-year-old man, you, you should be saying, you know what, you're leading by example there. I'm really pleased. You know, I'm really proud of your work. You know, thank you for making my life easier, whatever it might be. But I don't think you can ever take any of them for granted. I'm dying to hear about the new project. You know, I love my football, Joe, but I'm dying yeah, to yeah, hear about yeah. the new project. Tell me about the Ascenders. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a concept that was sort of, um, that was pulled together by myself and a really good, another ex-tooting man, um, Dean Forbes, who's a really successful businessman. So he's created a, uh, for the Forbes family group, which is you know, predominantly originally it was around a, a, um, a portfolio, a property portfolio, but he's expanding that into more, you know, charitable work. And, you know, he's, he's keen to give back, you know, he's a, he's another guy that has had a real tough upbringing, single parent family, you know, his mum was disabled to a point and, you know, he's managed to succeed in life and he wants to, to give something back. So what we've seen, both of us, Dean, obviously being black, I, I come from a mixed background, you know, my, my dad being, uh, my granddad coming from Guyana originally, so kids like us from where we're from generally have a, a, a tough go at it. You know, the kids from the estates, you know, low social economic um, situations. And when I see the news, whether it's mainstream media, you know, newspapers and this rhetoric of, you know, kids stabbing each other or, you know, getting up to no good, et cetera, et cetera. We wanted to create a, um, a body of work. Um, and it is a body of work, right? You know, there are individual 
podcast interviews, but it is a body of work and it is to be seen hopefully as a collective where we can showcase people that are from the areas that we're from and have similar background to us that have carved out success um, and how they've done that. Um, you know, whether it was, you know, they've been into, into prison and then worked their way upwards on, upon their release and, you know, turned over a new leaf. You know, whether that somebody mentored them or supported them financially or otherwise. Um, you know, so just talking about the the characteristics and the you know the the habits of, of successful people. Um, so you know, so far we've we've spoken to some really, really interesting people that have opened my eyes up to, you know, even me in my wise old age to 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 new ways of reaching the top. And it is they're inspiring stories. And I hope that, you know, those people that have had the opportunity to listen to it or will do um, see it the same way that I do. Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for, for being my first guest, but for your generosity of time. My pleasure. Where can we find you? Where's the Ascenders? Where's the best place to find you? We're everywhere. We're on, um, we're on Twitter. Um, I believe that the handle is at Real Ascenders. Um, the same with Instagram. Um, the full family group YouTube channel is where you can subscribe um, so you can you know, get notifications that the next one is coming. But they're, they're being released on a weekly basis on a Thursday. So keep your eyes peeled for those. Um, you know, as I say, you know, some really inspiring people on there and you might learn something. You never know. Good stuff. Well, if you've enjoyed meeting Joe, there's plenty more where that came from. Don't forget to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.